Today's scripture reading is from John 14, 1 to 21. Please stand for the reading of the gospel. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, Don't you know me, Philip, even after I have been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. Very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. If you love me, keep my commands. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him, because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. On that day, you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. This week, some of us from WCF here went to the memorial service for Harvey Lee Huey, one of, uh, the father of Rob Huey, one of our community members here at WCF. And he's giving me permission to share this. Uh, like many memorial services where we celebrate the life of a loved one, we heard many fond memories of uh, Harvey from family members and friends. I was struck by some of the stories told by, of Harvey by family members, and especially in light of the same passage that we just heard Phyllis read for us from John chapter 14. In particular, I recall one granddaughter who shared how she and her family moved a lot as she grew up and even as an adult. But coming home to grandma and grandpa's house always felt like coming home. 
There was a sense of comfort and familiarity and, and love. The warmth of Grandpa's home provided assurance for this granddaughter that carried her through all the tumultuousness of the moves. And through all the anxieties and dislocations of life, she looked forward to being in the presence of Grandma and Grandpa. As I continued to listen to other memories, I got the sense that Harvey, his character and his generosity impacted so many because of the assurance he had in his relationship with the living God, whom he affectionately called Abba Father. In many ways, because of Harvey's relationship with his Heavenly Father, his life was marked by this character of the Heavenly Father towards those he worked with, but also towards his family. I think that the life of Harvey reflects this kind of life that Jesus describes to his disciples in the passage we just heard from John chapter 14. We're in the middle of the This Future Life message series where we've been looking at the kind of life that Jesus describes for us and promises us for in the future and how that future life impacts us here in the present. In this passage, Jesus is speaking with his closest friends over a meal his final meal with them before he is betrayed by one of those sitting at the table. And that night, he is arrested and crucified a few days later. In in these few chapters of John, we hear Jesus' final words to his friends. As we heard last week from John chapter 13, Jesus' first word to them is actually not a word, but it's in fact an action, an action of service, where he gets up in the middle of the meal And begins to wash their feet. And now he continues giving them words of assurance. As he is deeply aware of their anxiety over his imminent departure. So we're going to look at this passage in three movements. How Jesus comes and and, and offers them a place of comfort. He offers them a way to comfort. And ultimately a person who comforts. A place of comfort. The way to comfort. And a person who comforts. This week, I was getting ready to prepare for, uh, dinner at, at home, and I gave Julia a call to ask uh, some dinner plan, about some details for the dinner plans as she was driving home from work. However, Julia was preoccupied with traffic and couldn't talk, so she, she said, I'll, t- I'll talk to you later. Can I, let, let's hang up. So we hung up, and a few minutes later, she walked in the door, and uh, she, I, I could tell she wanted to talk, but I was busy with dinner. She was looking for me to empathize and, and listen to her and, and seek comfort. And so it turns out that when, she, when I had called her, she was at this intersection, if you can recognize it. It's right beside the Library of Congress during the counterflow lane. So she's in the counterflow lane, and this street right in front is Independence, oncoming traffic. And so what happened was she went straight into the one-way uh, traffic. And at that very moment, they had called, so she was really stressed out. And when she came home... She was looking for comfort from me. She was anxious and worried that she was getting a ticket because the police had kind of hey, yelled at her. And then I, I just said, after, I, after I, unfortunately, okay, fortunately, she was safe. Unfortunately, I wasn't listening to her when she was telling me this. And she didn't find the comfort she was looking for until she got me to slow down and listen. The disciples here are in need of comfort. They're anxious that their master is leaving, and they don't understand where he's leaving to. They don't understand his somewhat cryptic messages when he says, I'm going to a place. You know where the place I'm going. You know the way there. They know something is changing shortly, but they don't quite get it. 
It's kind of like if you're a parent of a a toddler and you're dropping them off at daycare or Ikea play area for the first time, they know something is changing. They know something is going to happen, but and they're anxious, and maybe, maybe they don't even know it. And they know maybe you're anxious because this is the first time you're dropping them off with a stranger. You can see this anxiety reflected in the question of the disciples. You have Thomas in verse 5 saying, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Verse 8, Philip says, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. And then you have Judas, not Judas Iscariot, who betrays Jesus when he says in verse 22, Lord, why, why do you intend to show yourself to us but not to the world? Just before the start of this chapter, we hear Jesus have an interaction with Peter. He turns to him during the meal, and and Peter is going to be one of the leaders of the church. And he tells Peter, you're going to deny me three times tonight. They're all on edge. They're reacting to the news of Jesus' imminent departure, but they don't understand what he's talking about. And maybe they're not even aware of what they're feeling. Often, isn't that the case for many of us? We're not even aware of the anxiety that we're feeling. And through great work of psychologists and psychiatrists like, you know, Kurt Thompson and and Keith Miller, who was here with us yesterday uh, as a therapist and leading this workshop on how mindfulness can help us pay attention to our, our anxiety that affects our relationships. We can learn to pay attention to the sources of our anxiety and to our emotions. And if you want, just kind of a plug, we're going to get a copy of the audio and we'll post that on the, on the website once that's available. Jesus knows their anxiety. And that's why Jesus starts off this chapter with the command, do not let your hearts be troubled. It's the first thing he says. He's helping them identify what they're feeling. When we're disoriented and anxious, what place do you turn to? Maybe you're coming here today, I'm troubled. I'm anxious. I've been anxious this week. What places do you turn to when you're feeling that way? Maybe a good friend. Maybe Netflix. Maybe it's a physical location. Maybe it's your bed. Your nice, comfy, warm blankets and pillows. Or maybe it's food or alcohol or medication. Maybe some of us just like to start doing stuff. We start fixing stuff that doesn't need to be fixing. When we're anxious, we find ourselves running to places so we don't have to face the source of our anxiety. We numb ourselves and distract ourselves, but that doesn't actually address the anxiety, the source of it. And maybe one place we run to is a therapist. When we're anxious, therapists, uh, psychiatrists tell us that there's a part of our brains called the amygdala, and it's processing inputs and flagging them as threats. And as it's doing that, it's signaling the rest of your body, saying, high alert, danger, danger. So prolonged anxiety can cause long-term effects to our physical bodies and our emotional health. So psychiatrists will often help, and therapists will often help people uh, struggling with anxiety by uh, uh, therapy or through medication. And with therapy, they're helping patients to respond in different ways as they acknowledge their sources of anxiety and find new ways to cope. And with medication, they're hoping to reduce the body's chemical response to anxiety. But here, Jesus offers a different place to comfort them when they're anxious. He describes in verses 2 to 4, he just says, there's a place of comfort. Comfort. He's replaying, repeating place three times in these few verses. There's a place that he's going to prepare for them. There's a place that he's going to lead them to. 
specifically for those who would trust him. This place that Jesus promises to secure for them is not a physical house. It's not a substance or a, or a coping mechanism. That place is the Heavenly Father's home. It's a reference where the living God dwells. It's a reference to, for Jesus to this future home for those who put their trust in Christ. It's what the Bible describes as the new heavens and the new earth when the living God renews all things and there will be a place for everyone who trusts in Christ to be in God's presence for eternity. It's a future place where sickness and sorrow and broken things of our life experience are made whole. And so while the disciples here are anxious because he is going away, Jesus assures them, that though he goes away, it's for their benefit. He's taking and going to a place where they will end up. Their future place of comfort gives them assurance to carry them through their present anxieties because of Jesus' soon departure. You know, when we're anxious, the places we turn to for comfort aren't lasting. They're simply distractions. When we've done our Netflix series binge-watching, when we've indulged in our comfort foods, or even after a good talk with a, a friend and a listening ear, our anxiety isn't always removed. It's simply covered over. Jesus doesn't end up answering all their questions, at least the way they probably expected to be answered. Instead, he simply gives them assurance that they'll be okay, and he's going to take them there. The Father's house is a place that exists, though we may not quite experience it all in all its fullness quite yet. It's a place that Jesus goes to first for us and promises to us. One of my last memories before leaving Vancouver last summer was uh, being invited on a guided salmon fishing tour uh, day on the, off the shores of Vancouver. And when I first got there, like I've been on a couple of these before and I've gone fishing myself and you never re- realize uh, whether you're going to f- have fish or not. I wondered if this guide, his name is Jason, knew what he was doing. He took our boat past all the other boats who had their lines in the water. And he took us to a place where there was no other boats. And he stopped. And, he, and I was like, man, are you sure you know what you're doing? Why is everyone over there? He slowed the boat down, helped us set four rods into the water. But within five minutes, hit, fish, fish, fish. We jumped on. This is, I think, the first one. And that's him helping us, you know, scoop it out of the water. Within two and a half hours, we had caught 16 salmon and limited out for the day. Turns out, the guide, Jason, had been to this place the day before, and he knew the way there. He'd marked it on his GPS, fish scope. And he'd been observing schools of salmon who were sitting in the the strait, waiting to go upstream of the Fraser River to spawn. Because he knew the way and he knew the place, we had the assurance of a successful fishing day. You know, Jesus does the same for us and for the disciples. Though he's going away, it's for their benefit because he's going to this place first. But when Thomas asks about this way and the way to get there, Jesus responds in verse 6. He says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's a pretty audacious claim. Exclusive. In our culture of of political correctness and diversity, 
Any exclusive claim can be off-putting, especially when it comes to religion and, and faith. So the belief that all religions are essentially the same and they all lead to the same place and achieve the same goal is one way that people often dance around this exclusive claim. But if you're really honest with yourself and honest with what faiths and religions say, they will reveal that that can't actually be true, especially when you look at some fundamental categories. Categories like these questions to think about as you evaluate Christianity, other faiths, or even systems of thinking, economics, science. What do those fields of study, worldviews, say about the world we live in? What's the nature of the world? What's wrong with the world that we live in? How do we fix what's wrong with the world? And where is this world all going to? These are all fundamental categories for us to compare what we believe about things. And if you look at those categories and compare what some major world religions might say, they, they're very different. Those who practice Hinduism or Buddhism or other New Age approaches and ancient Gnostic traditions view the material world with some suspicion as something to escape. Buddhists believe that what's wrong with the world is our lack of self-control over our desire. And that's what causes suffering on others. For those who practice Hinduism, it's the belief that what's wrong with the world is we aren't living moral enough lives. And that affects the kind of life that we will live in the next life. And atheists might believe what's wrong with the world is that there's a bunch of religions that tell you what you're supposed to believe. And you should depend on rationality and empirical evidence as the foundation of how you make decisions for your life. The Christian story found in Scripture describes the material world as fundamentally good, created by an eternal living God. And what's wrong with the world is that through the gift of free choice to humanity, we chose to reject the good things of the living God, breaking relationship with Him, and breaking relationship with ourselves and with the created order. And the way to fixing all this stuff and the way to restoring broken relationship with God, with ourselves, and with others is through faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And through faith in what Jesus has done for us, we are restored in relationship with God. And we're given the ability to live fully as human in relationship with others around us. And Christ's followers have also been given the ability to live with our purpose in the world as his image bearers, working towards the renewal of all things. That's where it's all headed to. Although many religions may share some element of a moral code to live by or a longing for a, another future experience that provides motivation for us in this life, they, vary, vary, they differ fundamentally and they differ significantly. The uniqueness of this claim that Jesus makes doesn't just show us the way or he doesn't just walk the way. He says that he himself is the way. He's the way to the Father, to the living God. And if you lose this exclusive claim of Jesus, you begin to lose a true vision of the living God. If you come to God with your own preconceptions of what God might be or who he might look like, you might miss the Jesus who wept at the, feet, uh, at the grave of his friend. And you might miss the Jesus who, as their leader, washed the disciples' feet.
you might miss the Jesus who gave up his life for the brokenness of you and I and for the entire world. Respected pastor and author Tim Keller writes on the nature of this exclusive claim of Jesus, and he says this. It's up on the screen. At the heart of this Christian's, uh, the Christian's view of spiritual reality is a man who gave his life in sacrifice for people who did not believe in him, a man who died asking for forgiveness for the people who were killing him. Therefore, Christianity is an exclusive claim, but it is the most inclusive exclusive claim because it wants you to exclusively believe in this man who died for his enemies and asks you to love and care for yours. Isn't the widely inclusive nature of this exclusive claim a most comforting assurance? When Jesus says he is the way, the truth, and the life, he is going to a place of rejection, to death itself, that none of us could ever withstand. And he returns from death to be reunited with the Father in a way that we are all created for, but unable to achieve on our own merit. The way to true and lasting comfort is through Jesus himself. And the way to Jesus is simply to believe that he is the way. There's nothing more that we have to do. There's nothing more that we can do to go to that place of comfort that he goes to on behalf and ahead of us. And that is truly comforting. When I was about five years old, I got lost at the local Safeway. I got distracted by the sugary cereal aisle. And when I turned around, my mom wasn't there and the shopping cart wasn't there. So I began walking down aisle after aisle and just looked empty. One aisle after another. And when you're five and you lose your mom at the, 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 the supermarket, it's like being abandoned. And this is the age where they had, you know, missing children, you know, pictures on the milk cartons. So as I was walking down the aisles, tears beginning to fill my eyes, you know, sniffles holding the back, but I'm trying to hold on a big boy pose. Everyone ignored me because I'm just wandering down the aisles until one woman took notice of me. She asked me if I needed help. She took my hand and she walked me to the customer service counter and explained the situation. And that was when I first discovered the power of the supermarket paging system. which I went on to use several more times after that. <laughs> they paged my mom. We got recommended. Uh, we reconnected, and we went home together. You know, when we're disoriented or anxious, there is something assuring about having someone come alongside of us, see that we need something, and offer comfort and help. Often this comforting friend doesn't even have to be someone we know, just like this thoughtful stranger at Safeway for me. But the effect is the same. Jesus shows the depth of God's empathy when he is keenly aware of his disciples' anxiety and promises not only a place of comfort, a way to that place of comfort, but he promises a person who comforts. Verse 16 and 17, he says, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper or advocate to help you and be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. 
You know, over the years, I've talked with enough people, usually those with a little more left-brained and rational in nature, the people that I probably get, connect with naturally. And they think it would be much easier to believe in Jesus if they were there with him and saw him do all those things, just like the disciples did. But if you think about it, and even in this passage we just read, that's not how it worked, even for the disciples who were sitting there with him and saw him do all these amazing things. Even those closest to him had difficulty understanding him and believing him and they, until they saw him resurrected. They turned on him. They betrayed him. And even the, the Apostle John, who writes this gospel for us, fled from Jesus when he was arrested. The fact is, it's actually easier for us to believe now than then because we have been given the gift of his spirit. The third person of the Trinity and the fullness of his spirit at work in us and in the world. Through Jesus' own inner life, through his very breath, he's given us another helper here. And there's many ways that the spirit works as our helper. There's other terms that scripture uses and translates the word as counselor, as comforter, or as an advocate. As a counselor, he comes to give us assistance uh, to when we have and how to live and what decisions to make and how to witness for him in the world. As a comforter, when we're distressed or, anxiety or anxious, he, the Holy Spirit comes as another person sitting with you, knowing you, embracing you, giving you strength for this moment and giving you strength for the next moment and the moment after that. As an advocate, many of us work in the legal field, an advocate stands up in a court of law and explains to the judge and to the jury how things are different from the client's point of view. The advocate pleads the case, as Jesus himself knew, when they're on the wrong side of official persecution. Let me share with you a few examples of how the Holy Spirit might work as a helper from some stories of WCFers, and they've given me permission to share these stories. Many of you know Byron List, who's playing piano today, but he serves as a headmaster of an uh, elementary and middle school. He told me of a conversation that he had with a third grader this week. The student was facing a dilemma of making a decision, and Byron prompted him for what possible actions he could take. And so they paused for a moment so to give the boy some time to consider whether uh, to choose to make a, a good choice or to make an unkind choice. And after some thought, Byron then asked him, uh, the boy came and said, I think I, I should make a good choice. And Byron asked him, it's like, where do you think that came from? And the boy said, I think the Holy Spirit. And Byron went on to encourage him, yeah, the Holy Spirit is our counselor. He guides us towards making the best choices for our lives. And the Holy Spirit is our comforter. He helps us to have the strength to act on those choices. And here's another way, perhaps, how the Holy Spirit acts as our comforter. Many of you know uh, Jane Charles or Jane Ogala, who's been a member of our community here at WCF for many years, and she has a visual impairment. She's been un unable to attend recently because of health issues, one after another. And I had a chance to visit with her the previous week in the hospital. And she's been there for many weeks now. And most recently, she had broken her ankle and is in a cast that's been really uncomfortable. And every day, she has to go through three hours of physical therapy. She says it's the hardest work she's ever had to do. And first of all, she does 
want to send a, a words of appreciation, saying thank you for prayer, thank you for support and visits. And if you want to connect with her or find out how, uh, you can come talk to me or look for Janet Tupper, who's not here with us today, and we can help you get connected to her. As I spent time with her, I was amazed at the depth of her faith and how close she felt to Jesus, even though she was going through one of the hardest things in her, lives, in her life. Every day, she was going through these grueling three hours of physical therapy. And her cast was so uncomfortable, at one point she wanted to, she was trying to pry it off and yelling at the medical staff. Every day she was crying out to Jesus, and in the depths of her pain, she would turn to Jesus in song and reciting scripture out loud. Luckily, she has a room to herself. She said to me, to me and I wrote these, I was jotting these words down as, as she said them. She says, I can't say thank God for my leg or for my pain, but I can say thank God for never feeling as close as I have now. The gift you give me is to worship and to praise you. Wow. She continued to share with me how hospital staff come and are inspired by her faith and her strength, even when she's sitting there in the hospital bed. One of them came to confess to her as she was feeding Jane about something that this staff member had done to be dishonest to another worker because they were inspired by her faith. And here I am, I was coming to the hospital thinking that I was there to comfort her, but I couldn't help that to think that her life and her attitude actually were an inspiration to me. Here in front of me was a woman who, was, who, had a, who couldn't see with a cast on her foot, who has experienced years of hardship, yet her life and her faith spoke boldly to those around her because of the assurance and the comfort she experienced through the Holy Spirit as her helper. I think this is what Jesus had in mind when he said to the disciples in John chapter 14, verse 12. He says, Very truly, I tell you, Whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these, because I am going to the Father. Often we might read that verse and think the greater works are more spectacular miracles than Jesus did. But that's not what he's saying here. What he's saying is that these greater works are a greater impact globally and through history because of the Spirit's work in people who follow Christ. When we put our trust in Jesus, we find the way to a place of true comfort in the Father's house in the future. And when we put our trust in Jesus, we are gifted with a person who comforts us, who helps us, and guides us in a way that we could never imagine. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you are the way, that you are the truth, and that you are the life. And you walk a road that we would never be able to walk. And you come back from the end of that road with a promise. A promise of forgiveness, a promise of new life, and a future that is secure. Not because of anything that we have done, because of everything that you have done for us because of the depths of your love. And we thank you for the gift of the person of the Holy Spirit who is with us, who helps us, who guides us. And he's doing that right now in the hearts of each one of us. Whenever we're anxious or whenever we're at peace, may we hear 
the voice of the Holy Spirit and be guided into this life that you've promised to us. For your namesake.